0: Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the Church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. At the end of the first section of the recording, please turn the tape over to hear the rest of the service. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. We have an incredible cast. I hope you can join us for the show. It, if you've been paying attention, you will discover that there is quite a bit in common, in fact, between the story of Moses and the revelation which we have been studying. Many of the plagues, for instance, are uh, similar, very similar to what, uh, to what Moses uh, brought upon the people of Egypt when they were unwilling to let the people of Israel go. Uh, today we are not going to be reading of the the, the third cycle of the plagues. I know that you would love to hear more about 100-pound hailstones and water turning to blood, but I think we got the point the first two times around, and, uh, and so we're going on. But it is a very clear, a repeated uh, imagery that, it, that we find way back in the earliest part of our Scripture, and then at the very end of the Scripture, the same thing holds true, and of course the same thing holds true for people they always grumble, they never obey, they always turn their back on God, and God is forced to deal with it. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I've had the privilege of traveling a good bit in my life, and of all of the sites that I have seen, I do not believe that there is any site that is more spectacular or unusual than the city of Petra in Jordan. I'm curious, how many of you have been to Petra? If you ever make a trip to the Middle East, and you do not include that, you will have missed out on really one of the most exciting sights that you will ever see. Uh, For centuries, this was the capital city of the Nabataean kingdom, and you have to make your way into Petra going through a very narrow seek, they call it, canyon, with walls that go up hundreds of feet on either side, and in some cases, the canyon is only 15 feet across. And you come out and you discover uh, in the middle of this uh, area, this enclosed area, this spectacular city that was carved right out of the very stone. And the stone has the colors of the rainbow, all gorgeous colors, and they have carved treasuries and temples and tombs and houses right out of the very walls. You walk all day and you can't see all that there is to see in that city, and there's only a tenth of it that has been excavated from the sands of Jordan. It is really spectacular. And the amazing thing is that only within the last 150 years were any of us aware of it who were outside of that little region. It was hidden. It was lost. And only in the 19th century was Petra rediscovered after having been lost for all of those centuries. It was very literally a lost city. The history of humankind is littered with lost cities, isn't it? Great civilizations that rose and fell. And in some cases, they remain only a A hollow shell of what once they were? Could it be that Saddam Hussein's Iraq is really the heir of that once great Babylonian empire? Is modern-day Cairo, and if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. Could modern-day Cairo really be the heir of that once mighty Egyptian empire? Where are the Medes? Where are the Assyrians? And what of Alexander the Great's empire? Well, this morning, John gives us a glimpse of another lost city, and he calls it Babylon. And the tragedy of Babylon is this they don't even know that they are lost. And the greater tragedy still is that if we are living in a Babylon of our own, we may not even be aware of it. Uh, this is a long reading again this morning, and, and so I would invite you to, if you are especially an oral listener, an oral learner, just close your eyes and listen to the story because actually it is fine literature in addition to being the Word of God. So close your eyes, listen, allow the images to jump out of you. Don't try to read along in the text. It's too long. Let me do that for you. Hear the Word of God. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes, "'and of the abominations of the earth. "'I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, "'the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. "'When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. "'And then the angel said to me, "'Why are you astonished? "'I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, "'which has the seven heads and ten horns. "'The beast which you saw once was, now is not, "'and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction.' The inhabitants of this earth whose names have not been written in the book of the life, of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He who... He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive the authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their authority and power to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After I saw this, another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. and With a mighty voice he called, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wines of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke her burning, of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon city of power! In one hour your doom has come." The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. They will say, The fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have banished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off. Terrified at her torment, they will weep and mourn and cry, out, Woe, woe, O oh great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship The sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of the millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of "'of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. "'Your merchants were the world's great men, "'but by your magic spell all the nations were led astray. "'In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints "'and of all who have been killed on the earth. "'And after this I heard what sounded like the roar "'of a great multitude in heaven shouting, "'Hallelujah! "'Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, "'for true and just are his judgments.' He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now God speak to us. Untangle this word that they might be for us the words of Christ. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen. This morning's reading is divided into two parts. The first half, the first chapter which we read, is this incredible vision in a book full of incredible visions. It is the picture of a woman. This is not the first woman that we have seen. As you recall, that was the image of the wonderful woman who gave birth to the Messiah child. But there's something very much different about this woman. The text calls her the great prostitute or the great whore. She is dressed in the finest clothing the world had to offer. We read purple and scarlet. We don't think a thing about it. But the purple, for instance, was created by one drop at a time, squeezed out of particular mollusks. It was incredibly expensive. And so when you see her arrayed as this, in the purple and in the scarlet, you are looking at the finest finery the world has to offer. She is covered with gold. She drips in jewels. She holds in her hand a golden cup that is filled with with a horrible brew that has apparently intoxicated the kings of the earth into an adulterous affair with her. Could, is there someone that can help? Is there an usher that can help these folks make sure they're okay? Her hand has this cup and holds this horrible brew and, it, and the kings of the earth have entered into an adulterous affair with her. And like the others that we have seen so many times in this text, there is something written on her head as well. And it is a large title. She must have had a big forehead because it says, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and of the Abominations of the Earth. And what makes this vision even more remarkable is that the great prostitute is seated not on a throne, but on a beast. And it is a beast that we have already seen, isn't it? It is the beast we saw back in chapter 13. It is the sea beast. Remember, this beast represents all that is horrible, the idolatrous political institutions of the world. And we see him in all of his horrid glory, seven heads, ten horns, bright scarlet in color. you have this image in your head? It is a garish picture, isn't it? This painted up, decked out, drugged up, jewel-laden whore straddling this hideous monster. And we are shocked. And so is John, as a matter of fact, The text says that he is shocked, but the angel proceeds to interrupt his vision to him, to interpret it, to help him to understand what he's seeing. Now, let's see if we can make sense of the pieces of it. First of all, Babylon. Now, we know that there was actually a great kingdom called Babylon. It's mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And the word Babylon comes from the word Babel. Do you remember the story of Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis? Genesis. It was then that the people decided that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They didn't need God any longer. And so they built this great tower and they, by that, intended to make a a reputation for themselves. And, of course, God ended up giving them different languages so that they couldn't even communicate and they were scattered all over the world. Every time you read Babylon, any place except it's dealing with the historical Babylon in the Old Testament, you need to understand that this is a code word which the scripture used to mean any society that has turned its back on God and become, in essence, its own God. That's what Babylon means. Seven heads. The angel says that the seven heads are actually seven hills. Do you have any idea what that means? Exactly right. Any first century reader would have known exactly what he was talking about. For the seven hills were the seven hills of Rome. Rome was built on seven hills. In fact, every year they have an annual festival called the uh, Septimantavan, which is the celebration of the seven hills. So there is no question what this particular expression of Babylon is about. But the angel also says that he represents seven kings, five fallen. One is, is, is and the other is yet to come and the beast himself will be an eighth. And we're going, whoa, what is this about? As you can imagine, some commentators have worked diligently trying to find a way to figure out who these historical figures might be. And so they begin with Augustus, the first great emperor of Rome, and they begin to count. "Mm, That doesn't work out because there's too many people. So they try eliminating some of the more minor emperors. That doesn't quite work out. So they try starting at Julius Caesar. Then they try starting at Caligula. It doesn't matter what you do, you're going to have to fiddle with the numbers a little bit to make this work if you assume that these seven kings represent seven historical figures. Now, remember, numbers are symbols for John. Then there's the ten horns. The angel says that the ten horns are ten kings who will receive the authority from the beast and will serve him. And they exist for one purpose, which is to fight against the lamb, but they will fail. Now, many saw in this ten horns... A prediction of a rising up again of a new expression of the Roman Empire. I remember some 20, 25 years ago, the big thing was that the 10th country was about to join the European common market. Remember? And we were convinced that that was the 10 kings. That was the, the recreation of this text. And any moment now with the European common market, here it was going to come. Well, remember, numbers are symbols for John. So let me tell you what this whole Babylon thing is, I believe. Babylon represents all of the great societies down through history that have turned their backs on God and pursued evil. Seven kings, that means completeness. Ten kingdoms, that means great power. Ten kings, seven kings, ten kingdoms. Once again, these numbers represent a persuasive, powerful force. And over and over again, down through history, great kingdoms have risen up in great power, united great numbers, and turned their back against God. And one day, this text promises there will be fo- one final great power that will arise. And it will serve the cause of the beast and seek to destroy the lamb and the lamb's pe- people. And it will fail. It will fail. I think we are mistaken if we try to make Babylon a particular, uh, a particular country or to name the kings. Name, that's not what it intends to say. It is all of the great societies that become corrupt and align themselves against God. I believe that that's what it means. In fact, that's what comprises the rest of the reading is the destruction of Babylon. It is really a funeral dirge. The second half of it, chapter 18, it's a lament of the fall of this great society that was considered impregnable. And of course, at the time, it was Rome. They can't imagine that this would happen. Remember, they're writing 300 years yet before Rome is actually sacked. But the onlookers in this this text are amazed at the speed with which Babylon was destroyed. The kings of the world, did you see it? the merchants of the world, even the sailors of the world, they are all terrified, they all stand far off, and they cry out, whoa, 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 against a city that was so great, and in the end fell so violently and so quickly. As I said earlier in the sermon, there have been many Babylons down through the ages. Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome, Nazi Germany. The thing about being a Babylon, though, is that you usually never realize that that is what you are. People who live in the lost city often do not know that they are lost. For that very reason, I believe that it is a fair and prudent thing for us to ask this question. Now that we, the United States of America, are the only remaining superpower in the world, what is to keep us from becoming the next vehicle by which this evil influence will demonstrate its wretched power over the world? I believe that the text reveals certain signs, certain indicators that help us to spot a Babylon in the making. And I want us to look at them and I want us to do a ruthless self assessment of this wonderful land in which we live, this country which we are proud to call our own. One of the signs of Babylon is materialism, rampant materialism. Did you notice it in the text? We saw it in the way that the prostitute was dressed and adorned in chapter 17. The, she was wearing the best of everything, clothed in the finery, dripping with jewels. We we heard it in the cry of the angel who speaks out against what he calls her excessive luxuries. And then we saw it in chapter 18 in the list of the merchants, cargo manifest. Did you see that? All that is included there included gold and silver and jewels linen, purple, scarlet, ivory, marble, cinnamon, myrrh, incense, and on and on the list went. At one of Nero's banquets, he spent nearly $100,000 in today's money on Egyptian roses. Another emperor, Vitellius, enjoyed the delicacies popular at the time of peacock brains and nightingale's tongues. And in his reign of less than one year, Vitellius managed to spend $20 million, mostly on food. One of the signs that we are dwelling in Babylon is an absolute obsession with material Belongings. And it is here, I'm sure all of you will agree with me, my Gig Harbor brothers and sisters, that the knife cuts pretty close to the bone, doesn't it? For we are the consumers of the world, and I don't just mean we Americans, I mean right here. Is, is it not right here, my Gig Harbor friends, when we start to find ourselves fidgeting the most in sermons? Are we not the minority of the world that can? afford to lavish upon ourselves ever larger homes, ever more extravagant automobiles, ever more elegant boats, ever more immodest means of housing and transportation? Will we ever reach a point where we start to feel ashamed of the way in which we consume? And I say this pointedly as we, for I am right in the mix. And all the while we turn a deaf ear to the cries of the world where thousands of children die daily, of preventable disease and malnutrition. Babylon is materialistic. We are a materialistic society. Babylon is also idolatrous. In chapter 18, verse 7, the great whore boasts, I sit as queen. That is that she sets herself up as the god. She will never mourn. She will never be a widow. And she seeks to displace the power of the one true god with another. She seeks to divert worship, not to the true god, from the the true god to herself. Babylon is always idolatrous. Now, idolatry can be closely aligned with materialism. There are many of us that worship our possession, but it is something more, something more pernicious still. For idolatry is misplaced worship. It is worshiping that which is not worthy to be worshiped. goring every ox in sight, I might as well continue. It is hard for me to conceive of a better example in our own culture than our obsession with sports. I enjoy sports. I love to play. But if I ever saw the same level of devotion and passion exhibited towards Jesus and the work of the church here on his earth that I see directed towards football and baseball and professional wrestling, I think I would faint dead away. People who would never utter a peep in church who would consider it untoward to raise our hands or shout amen and praise to God, will jump up and scream like banshees for their favorite ball team. Explain that to me. There is something that is sick and crazy about blowing up a perfectly good, albeit ugly, building (laughs) on which we still owe over 120 million dollars in order to build yet another temple to our sports gods. And we seem to be making a habit of it in this state. And now our beloved Rainiers are threatening to leave us behind if we in Tacoma don't do the same thing for them. I love the games. I love going to the Rainiers. Let them leave. Can any discerning Christian person honestly deny that our modern obsession with sports is nearly as idolatrous as the temple worship against which John railed? But we have other idols in our our country. I must say our judicial system is one of them. I've watched with interest the unfolding debate on same-sex marriages in New England, disregarding thousands of years of tradition and religious teaching. They are in the process of throwing out the traditional family as the building block of our society in favor of a social experiment, the consequences of which we haven't a clue. But even on conservative talk shows... Appeal to anything like religious law or tradition is dismissed as irrelevant in this social discourse. Is it not idolatrous when our own judiciary dares to make itself God? Babylon is also dehumanizing. It is materialistic, it is idolatrous, and it is dehumanizing. Did you notice in that long list of material goods, the very last item on the list? Did you see it? What was it? Slaves the bodies and souls of men, which is a good way of putting it. Now, slavery is evil and pernicious enough, but in Babylon it, they had become so inured to the inhumanity of it that they viewed the slaves as just one more entry on a cargo manifest and the last item to boot. Now, we may pride ourselves on having moved beyond the ignorance and the evil of slavery in our own country, but we still readily consume goods that are produced by slaves in other countries, adult and children alike, and is not our insatiable appetite for pornography yet another uh, example of the dehumanizing impact of our culture? Pornography is the biggest money maker on the internet. Did you know that? The web has made it possibly, uh, possible for us to utterly degrade ourselves in the comfortable privacy of our own home. We used to have to go to seedy parts of town in order to do it. In the last 30 years, our process of dehumanization has taken on even more horrible face, if that can be possible... We now legally kill those inconvenient members on the extreme ends of our age range. We abort babies by the millions yearly, and we are euthanizing an ever increasing number of our elderly. We cannot even pass a federal law against partial birth abortion, which is nothing more than a sanitized word for infanticide. Do we really believe that these margins of death which we have established will not begin to creep inexorably closer to the middle? Babylon is something else. It is cannibalistic. Did you notice what happened to the great prostitute at the end of chapter 17? It is a horrible fate. In the end, she is turned on by the very beast she rode and the kings that she led, and they bring her to ruin. They strip her naked, they eat her flesh, they burn her with fire. It is a graphic, horrible, gruesome scene. And even in chapter 18, we are reminded of how treacherous the wicked really are for the kings, the merchants, the sailors, all of whom are mourning for her passing. They are not mourning for her loss. They are mourning for their loss because of their loss of income. And every one of them is described as weeping for her in the same way. How is that? Far off. Far off. Far off. These allies suddenly, when they see her being destroyed, they cannot get far enough away. And that is true of the world. Babylon is cannibalistic. Evil is cannibalistic. It turns co-conspirators into traitors. It turns on itself. It destroys itself. One of the ways that scuba divers deal with aggressive sharks is to gut shoot one shark with an underwater shotgun blast. And immediately the other sharks will turn on and savage the, the wounded shark. More bizarre still, the wounded shark oftentimes will eat its own trailing intestines. Great societies are not conquered from without. They are conquered from within. They die of rot. When Alaric and his buddies the Goths came rolling into Rome in August of 410 A.D., do you know how long it took for them to overcome and pillage that great city? One week. One week. Why? Because this once great society had become so rotten, so self-destructive, so cannibalistic that it was all but done for. And all it took was a little push. I believe there are clear signs that we live in Babylon. Sometimes things seem more hopeful to me. Other times things seem more desperate to me. But this is where we are. This is where God has put us. We are the lamb's lambs. Here is where we live. So what? shall we do about these things? How then shall we live? John offers two suggestions in this text and I give them to you. Come out and shout. Come out and shout. In recent years we've been hearing a lot about coming out. Did you know that it has biblical roots? In 18.4, a voice pleads from heaven, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven. For 2,000 years, one element of our Christian tradition took this literally, the monastic movement literally pulled itself out and set itself up as a holy community. But that is not possible for most of us, nor is it even desirable for most of us. We cannot run away from society. Here is where we are. This is where God has placed us. Nor should we. But we can certainly come out of much of the behavior of Babylon. We can come out of our excessive spending habits, our lust for more and more things. We can come out of our obsession with sports or other activities that are entirely out of balance with the rest of our lives. We can come out of political apathy and become involved in movements that seek to bring change. We can come out of our addiction to pornography, out of our adulterous affair, out of our alcoholism and drug addiction. We can come out of our protected community and build a habitat house in Tacoma or dig a ditch in Guatemala. If enough of God's saints choose to come out of Babylon's seediest neighborhoods, Babylon begins to change. We can come out and we can shout. We can shout about the truth just as the heavens did in the first part of chapter 19. It says, the heavens begin to shout. In the face of a society that says God has no place in our decision making, we can shout the eternal truths of God. In the face of a society that leads us toward death and destruction, we can shout salvation. In the face of society that leads us to hopelessness, we can shout, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God and only to Him. I pray that we will be those kinds of people in this kind of a culture. I pray that we will have the courage to say the truth, the insight to see the truth, and the courage to come out and to shout the truth to all who will listen. as the ushers prepare to come forward. Let us stand together and offer our voices of praise and adoration to the one true and living God as we sing our doxology. from around. here we are, your children, and we are in this place that you have created. And we thank you for our heritage, not only as...